Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Sarah Valentine, author of When I Was White. Sarah Valentine, author of When I Was White. Why did you decide to write this book? I decided to write this book because for a long time when I was growing up and after I graduated from high school and college, people always asked me about my identity. I grew up in a small white suburb of Pittsburgh. I grew up in the North Hills in Wexford. And my family raised me to believe I was white. My parents and my two younger brothers were white. And so growing up, they never talked about the fact that I looked different, but everybody else did. So there came a time when I really needed to reckon with my own identity, and writing a book was a good way for me to put all those pieces together and also to share my story. Was it difficult to write? It was difficult to write because the process of confronting my family about you know, why they had kept this a secret from me was difficult uh, in the first place and then putting all of those emotions and events into writing into a form that uh, others could read and understand was uh, a long and uh, difficult process but it was also a really empowering and uh, good process for me because it allowed me to tell my own story. Were there ever times when you, you, you thought, this, this is too tough, i got to stop this? Yeah, there were, there were some times uh, just in the things I was experiencing and in what I was writing that I thought, maybe this isn't such a good idea. But my desire to really get my story out there and to finish it for myself was, was what kept me going. And, and why do it as a book that you'd share with the world? The first, the, that's a, a good question, a question that people have asked me. At first, I just journaled about my feelings and experiences because it was all very overwhelming to switch racial identities in this country where uh, society is so fraught and to try to come to terms with the difference between what it means to be white, what it means to be black, and biracial. There's just a lot there. But I realized that as I told my story, others would tell me theirs. And I realized that this was a way I could connect to people and connect to uh, what's happening in our society at large. Have you heard from other people who have read the book? And I have. And even when I was just uh, writing personal essays, others would say, yeah, I had a similar experience. I grew up thinking I was one race or ethnicity, and then later I learned that I was something else. Or I was adopted, and I never knew um, my biological parents or one biological parent. And so I realized that my story was certainly unique in a lot of ways, but not uh, something that others didn't experience. Have your mom and dad read this? My dad has. I'm not sure if my mom has. As you can see in the book, our relationship um, had a lot of conflict because uh, she was the one who had kept the secret of who my biological father was. And even when she admitted that, yes, I did have a different biological father than the father who had raised me from birth, she still didn't want to give a lot of details. And so there was a lot of back and forth and kind of a tug of war between 
me and her for years, wanting to get more information. And she's saying, you know, no, that's, that's, um, that's all I know, or I don't have any more information for you. So um, we've come to a, a truce. I'm actually going to meet my parents for dinner <laughs> later tonight. So, um, you know, our, our relationship is still pretty close. Um, my dad was complimentary about the book. My brothers were very supportive. And others in my family and my friends said, yes, you know, you portrayed these events truthfully. And, you know, they could recognize a lot of the, the moments and the people, the characters in the book that I write about. Do you use actual names in the book? For my immediate family and some of my very close friends, I use their real names. But for most, most of the uh, characters in the book, I changed names and details. How would you remember it all? Mm -hmm. uh, I actually was a person who journaled a lot anyway and took a lot of, you know, I had planners that went back years. And when I started to write to be able to remember certain dates, I had a little archive of my own that I could, could look at, and that proved really helpful. Some of the things I just had to uh, construct or reconstruct from memory. And that's interesting because, you know, memory can be so fluid and someone else can remember an event differently and sometimes I would ask oh do you remember you know what happened at such and such a time uh, or I'd bring something up and one of my friends or family members would say D did that happen I don't remember that but I did um, because maybe it was something that uh, was a little bit more important to me if it uh, you know if it was uh, a time when someone had questioned my identity or uh, a moment that stood out to me but didn't stand out to someone else. So that was an interesting process of, uh, you know, kind of figuring out what, what I remembered as opposed to what others remembered. When you were writing this, did you spend a lot of time just sort of sitting, looking out the window, thinking? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's something all writers do. Uh, at, when you're writing, you can also get lost in your own thoughts and be distracted or, oh, it's time to stand up and get some coffee or, oh, I think I need to clean the kitchen, you know. <laughs> I think writers' houses are always a lot cleaner when we're trying to write a book. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of moments where I was distracted or procrastinated if I had to. I knew I had to write about something that was particularly difficult. I would kind of avoid it as, as much as I could but eventually, you know, circle back around to to writing it. So there were a lot of moments of, of that happening. Is this your first book? Uh, I had uh, translated a book of poetry before uh, it came out with a small press and uh, I studied Russian literature and taught Russian so I also wrote a book on Russian poetics but this is the first book that I wrote for a larger audience and it's the first book I wrote that's very personal. Uh, were you much of a reader when you were growing up? Absolutely. Literature was something I always loved and always gravitated towards. So most most of how I learned about the outside world, you know, growing up in a pretty small community was through literature and writing. And that was that gave me the first sense that, yeah, I, I want to be a writer. I, I like what I'm reading here. This this connects with me. So from a pretty young age, uh, even before high school, maybe middle school, I realized that um, I, I thought I wanted to be a writer. What kind of stuff did you read mm -hmm. when you were a kid? Mostly, you know, what I was taught in English class. So we read a lot of American authors, a lot of older work. And as I grew older and studied more literature from other countries and uh, other cultures, one of the things I realized is that I hadn't read a lot of African-American literature. That was something that wasn't focused on when I was growing up. And so as I 
started to explore my new sense of identity, that was the first thing I, I went to. I went to books. I studied African-American history, African-American poetry, Langston Hughes, Toni Morrison, and that was my first point of connection where I could start to get a little bit deeper into this world that I felt I belonged to but didn't know very much about. Were you a good student? I was a very good student. I think to um, go on to study in grad school, I got my PhD from Princeton in Russian literature. And you have to really like to study. Um, I always had good relationships with my teachers and professors. And school was a real source of validation for me. Um, and I realized as I was writing the book from teachers and mentors, that was something I really uh, needed. And it kind of helped me along my journey, having people who would kind of point out things to me that would, that would help me go deeper into my own uh, personal issues that I needed to explore. You went to Catholic school as elementary school? I did. I went to St. Alexis. Where is that? Oh, it's in the North Hills in Wexford. Was your neighborhood integrated? It was, but it was very, uh, there were very few people of color. I didn't have any uh, African-American teachers until I got to graduate school. So um, I never had a teacher of Asian-American descent or a Latino teacher. So even though it was integrated, and there were uh, other students of color in my school, but in a class of maybe six or 800, I could count those people on two hands. And my friends would always joke to me that depending on how I wore my hair that day, whether it was pulled back or curly, that the demographics of our school changed. <laughs> so, um, so you can imagine then how, uh, how undiverse or, or not diverse the, the area was. Did you have any African-American friends as an elementary school kid? Not Well, I did. And the funny thing was not understanding what my background was. Uh, I knew that teachers or other adults we met would confuse my name and hers, uh, even though we didn't look alike. And I thought, wow, why is this happening? You know, she's my friend, and we're, you know, not very close friends, but I, I don't understand why someone is calling me her name. And, and uh, experiences like that would happen uh, over and over, you know, as I grew up that like, oh, why, why is someone confusing me with this person? Or why is someone um, relating to me as if I am black or biracial or asking me, what are you or where are you from? I'm from here, you know, what, what's, what's so confusing? But even as I uh, still identified with my family, and you can see there's a photo of me and my brothers on the back cover of the book, and I look obviously much darker than they do, but I identified the same way as them. Did you ask your parents about that when you were little? When I was little, I didn't. There was a moment in high school uh, when a guidance counselor suggested I apply for minority scholarships to go to college. And again, those kinds of insinuations and statements had been, you know, they had always, they had always followed me. People always assumed that you know, I was something other than white. And my dad had picked me up from basketball practice that day. And when I got into the car, I asked him, I said, you know, I was preparing for college, and you know, scholarships <laughs> are are always great if you want to, you know, have have help with your finances going to college. And I told him what the guidance counselor had said, and I asked, "Well, should I apply for this kind of scholarship?" And he said, "No, that would be dishonest because you'd be taking a spot away from someone who who really needs it. You know, that doesn't apply to you." And he also said, don't tell your mother about this. So even when I, I did bring the subject up, uh, it was made very clear to me that it was taboo and that I should not, I shouldn't go there. 
What was your mother and father's ancestry? Oh, my dad was Irish American. My mom is Italian American, mostly. And so when people would say, what are you? I'd say, I'm Irish and Italian, because that's that was the uh, background that my parents and brothers shared. And you mm -hmm. said you, at one point you wanted to be a nun? <laughs> Growing up, um, Pittsburgh, uh, I always experienced as a very Catholic city. Uh, there there was a lot of Catholic influence in my life. Both my parents were Catholic, and we always went to church. And so uh, I had um, many of my elementary school teachers were nuns, and there was just something about it that seemed really, really spiritual and really, I don't know how to explain it, but I, but again, they were my teachers, and they validated me as a very good student, uh, even if they called me someone else's name uh, sometimes. But uh, they were the people I looked up to then. I thought, oh, I, I want to be like them. I want to be a nun. That didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> you said you liked rap early uh, on? Yeah, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and that was the time in which rap and hip-hop uh, hit the mainstream. And so growing up, I would get home from school and watch Yo! MTV Raps, the show that was on then. And it was really uh, also interesting because it was the only access I had to African-American culture. And of course, it was very mainstream. It was very, um, you know, growing up in a very white suburb, I didn't have a lot of African-American friends or people in the community that I could look up to. So the only, the only uh, parts of that I knew were what I saw on TV. And there was a, a funny moment where one of my uh, brother's friends, he was probably about eight at the time, came in and there was a video on TV with a uh, a few female dancers and one had light skin and very curly hair and he said Sarah you're on TV because I was the only person he knew who looked like that so that gives you a sense of how um, how much of a bubble I grew up in and how little uh, chance I had on my own to explore how my identity might relate to others did, did white kids of your age watch those shows and listen to that music? Yeah, it was very it was very popular. All the the rap tapes, and you know, you'd see the explicit lyrics uh, <laughs> label on on some of the on some of the tapes or CDs, and so it was very coveted. It was seen as very edgy as a way to kind of get away from our you know very you know very conventional upbringing. What high school did you go to? North Allegheny. That's a public school. It is. Was it more integrated than your Catholic school? Uh, a bit, yeah. Like I said, though, it was still in a very large class, very few uh, people of color. Was there anything different about uh, mm -hmm. how you felt about yourself or how you, you mm -hmm. were African-American friends when you got to high school? Uh, still, I didn't have many. And sometimes, sometimes my friends would try to set me up with someone else who was uh, mixed race in our school. And so I knew that there, again, was this way in which people people wanted to put me in that category. But because uh, of how taboo the subject was of my difference in my family, I could never fully see myself from that perspective. And something uh, interesting was, you know, growing up and being a teenager and starting to date, I realized I was getting a lot of attention from black students and black boys who were in my high school and from other area high schools that were more integrated and that had um, more of a mixed population. And that became an issue once when one of them asked me to a school dance. And my mother said, oh, no, you, you can't go with, uh, with him. And I asked, why not? And she said, that's, that's not done around here, meaning interracial dating. So it was, there was a very strong sense that I was 
I was not African-American. I didn't have anything to do with that uh, identity and that I shouldn't. So that was, uh, that was the message I got. How did races get along in high school? Mm -hmm. It was, again, there were certain people who were very popular from all groups. If you were uh, an athlete, which I was, I played basketball, and other people uh, who played football or basketball and were really well-known in school. It was pretty, those relationships were pretty uh, universal. There was not overt or outright discrimination. But people also kept to their own groups. You know, high school is very cliquish in general, and that, uh, that transferred to um, race as well. How were you as a basketball player? I was, I was pretty good, I think, uh, uh, for, for my skill level in, in high school. Uh, we went to states, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, and that was something that gave me a lot of notoriety, uh, in a good way, in the community. Mm -hmm. How'd you do in the states? I I can't remember. I don't think we will. We may have won and and then lost one. It's it was so long ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, what? Uh, tell me about college. When college was mm -hmm. approaching, you were still being raised as white. And mm -hmm. did, did you follow the news? I did. Uh, uh, and again, this was the era of uh, Rodney King in the in the nineties. The OJ trial that happened when I was in. Uh, high school and so the issues of of race in our society and police brutality and uh urban crime or so-called black on black violence it was the war on drugs you know so all of that that era that was all happening but it was not something in my family at least we ever talked about directly and it was also seen something i write about as racial issues and um social issues of, of class and either poverty or violence was something happening elsewhere. It wasn't happening where we were, so it wasn't so relevant to our lives. And of course that wasn't true. You know, things uh, are happening all, you know, they're happening everywhere and they're very relevant to our lives. So as I got to college, I met more people from different places. I went to Carnegie Mellon, so I stayed in Pittsburgh, but I still got to meet people from a lot of different backgrounds and those issues uh, became a lot more real to me. And for the first time, I really started to think a little outside the box of what I had been brought up with. Why was your mom so adamant about you going to Princeton? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something funny in the book. Uh, as I'm getting ready for college, she, she really wanted me to go to Princeton. And when I got into Carnegie Mellon, which is a phenomenal school, she was disappointed and uh, made the comment, well, I should just go to community college if I was going to stay in Pittsburgh and, and go to Carnegie Mellon. And I didn't quite understand why. I think for her, uh, our education was so important. And what she would say over and over was, I want to do for you, me and my brothers, what no one did for me, which was take an interest in our, uh, our interests and our school and really push us to be the best we could. But she had a very narrow definition of what that meant uh, in terms of how I identified and obviously where I went to school. So for some reason, Princeton was just it for her. And as it would turn out, I did go to Princeton for graduate school, but by, you know, by then it, it didn't, uh, it wasn't quite such an issue for her. I was already you know, growing up a little bit more. What did your mom and dad do for a living? My mom is a nurse practitioner, and my father works in, or he's the CEO of a tech company in Pittsburgh. 
when my parents met, they were in college, and my mom got pregnant with me, and my parents married, and she dropped out of school. So they got married very young, when she was 20 and he was 21. And so she focused on raising a family, and then went back to school later, and my dad worked. And so I think she also had a sense of having to have put her life on hold and her own education on hold until later and wanted to make sure uh, that that wasn't something I had to deal with. How was your family economically when you were growing up? We were, we were very comfortable. We were middle class. I never felt like there were, you know, the cool things other kids had that, that I couldn't have. And I'm sure I bugged my parents to, you know, always go to the mall and, you know, have the, have the coolest Air Jordans or whatever. But, um, that we, I grew up feeling very secure. Did you travel much? Not really. I didn't travel until I got to, we would go on family vacations in the summer to different spots on the East Coast. We had family in Philadelphia and in New Jersey, so we would travel on the East Coast, but I never went anywhere outside the country until I was in college. When you went off to college, mm -hmm. to Carnegie Mellon, what is it you wanted to do with your life? I wanted to be a writer, so I wanted to major in English, and I was studying Spanish at the time. So I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to keep studying Spanish. When I took Spanish classes in college, there were uh, some Dominican girls in my class, and the teacher and others in the class assumed I was part of their group. They assumed I was Dominican also, and as someone who was you know, very identity confused and just kind of stepping out into the world, that was very uncomfortable for me because I didn't, I didn't know how to uh, disabuse them of that. I didn't know, again, you know, why they, they connected me with that identity. And so I kind of moved away from Spanish and started studying Russian, which I had been interested in already. Why Russian? You know, I took a Russian history class in high school, and it just fascinated me. I was, I was never into the American history courses I studied in high school, maybe because, again, it didn't paint a very diverse picture of our country. But for some reason, the Russian Revolution and the czars just seemed kind of romantic and interesting, and I wanted to learn more. And as I said, I always loved literature. So when I started reading Tolstoy, I think we read Crime and Punishment in high school. Uh, it just really piqued my interest and curiosity. And I liked foreign languages anyway, so Russian felt like a challenge and something you know I could really just throw myself into. You're fluent in Russian? Uh, I am. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit rusty, but yeah, I became fluent in Russian in college and traveled to Moscow and lived there for a while. Do you speak other languages mm -hmm. than, than Russian? I, I studied German and Czech and uh, some Spanish and French. And there were times when I could speak them fluently, but now they're just languages I can translate from. How hard is Russian mm -hmm. compared to the other languages to learn? I mean, lo loads of people so mm -hmm. study French or Spanish in, yeah. in school. So how does Russian mm -hmm. compare to those? It was more difficult because the alphabet is different. The grammar is different. It's a whole different... Um, branch of languages than the European languages. So it was a little more difficult, but I think I, I kind of like that. I like the challenge of it. When you were deciding to major in Russian studies, mm -hmm. or was it major or? Yeah, major. Plan? Well, what did you mm -hmm. see as a career path? <laughs> That's what my parents asked me. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to teach. I had always been interested in writing and teaching. And so I thought, if I do study Russian, I'll go on to get a PhD and become a professor. 
uh, I was studying creative writing too. That was my other major. So I thought be between the two of these, I will be able to have a teaching career. So you mentioned you translated a book of poetry. Was it from Russian into from Russian. English? Mm -hmm. How do you translate poetry and have mm -hmm. what you end up with in the other language be poetic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's always that's always a big concern. And it's not so much that you always translate word for word. You try to do that to make sure you're getting the sense, the meaning of the language. But the poetic translation is more of uh, trying to carry over something of what the author wanted artistically also into the language. So it may not be one for one all the time, but I wanted people reading in English to, to be able to say, oh, okay, well, this is the author's style. This is um, his concerns, his voice. Could you have three or four people translate a poem from mm -hmm. one language into English and come up with four different poems? Absolutely. And you can see, you know, there you can see translations of very well-known poets from other languages, and the the translations will be a little bit different. But I don't think that means any of them is wrong. That's also, you know, unless you do a, a very bad job somehow, you can't really get it wrong. Translation is also an interpretation. You said you spent a year in mm -hmm. Moscow. Yeah. What year was that? It was my junior year. Well, I was there more uh, half the year, from January until the summer. What was going on in Moscow at the time? It was interesting. It was a time, uh, this was in 1999, and there was an economic crisis. The ruble had just been devalued. There was a lot of protest against the American embassy for things that were going on at that time. So it was uh, a little touch and go to be an American there. Um, but, you know, nothing, nothing happened to me personally. I was very safe. Uh, but it was a very interesting time to be in, in that country. Mm -hmm. what, what was it like? I mean, to, to, mm -hmm. what kind of apartment did you live in and what, what did you do for your classes, grocery stores, things like that, day-to-day -day life? Yeah, uh, so I lived in a dorm with other foreign students and they were from the U.S. and from the U.K. and uh, whatever, it was an international dormitory. I studied at the State Humanities University in Moscow. So it was all people studying literature and, and languages and cultures and things. So we all lived together in a, in a pretty rundown dorm <laughs> in Moscow, and the, the conditions were very different than I was used to in the U.S. You always had to bring your own toilet paper, for one thing. You could, you could never count on that being there uh, when you, you know, used uh, restrooms. And uh, so getting used to those daily life things was interesting. Also, there weren't supermarkets like there were here. There were stands or stalls or separate uh, little stores for produce, for bread. You know, in the morning we learned, go out to the bread truck, you know, and they'll, they'll hand you your big loaves of bread, and that's what you'll have for the next couple days. And then you'll, you know, go out early the next morning and, and get your bread again. So uh, getting used to those differences was really exciting, but also it was all foreign. So, you know, learning a foreign language is also learning a, a foreign culture and how people do things differently somewhere else. Were your classes all in Russian? Uh, they were part in Russian. We had, we had teachers specifically for the international students, so we did most of our work in Russian, but when we needed to, we were able to speak English. And what courses did mm -hmm. you take there? Why, why in Russia? Why in Russia? Uh, just to immerse myself in the language and culture more. Um, I accept for those classes or outside of school with my, um, with my classmates or the other people who lived in the dorms. I couldn't speak English. Uh, at the time, a lot of Russians were learning English, but it, their English wasn't good enough 
to hold a conversation or you know, say give directions in English. My Russian was much better than their English is, is what I'm saying. So it was a great opportunity to talk to people and learn about, they were interested in Americans and uh, America or the U.S. And uh, so that, that uh, helped me have a lot of conversations with people. Recommend some uh, mm -hmm. Russian writers to us. Oh, the big ones. I love Dostoevsky. Uh, Chekhov is one of my favorite writers. His plays and short stories. In English. In English. <laughs> yes, yes. If you want to read a long novel, also read Anna Karenina, uh, Tolstoy's. Russian literature doesn't have a lot of happy endings, but I think <laughs> that was something that resonated with me, too, for some reason. I liked uh, the fact that they were asking hard questions in the novels and coming to the point that there are no easy answers. And I felt that I had been dealing with similar questions in my life, and I didn't have easy answers for them. But it didn't mean that I, I couldn't write, that I couldn't study, that I still couldn't be myself, even though you know, everything wasn't cut and dry or lined up as nicely as it might be for someone else. Were all the students in your dorm uh, mm -hmm. in Russia white? Uh, not all of them. It was interesting. There was uh, a Pakistani woman who came from the UK, and again, we didn't look anything alike, but others would come up to us and say, oh, you two could be sisters. And we would look at each other in those moments and just kind of roll our eyes. Uh, you know, her also having the experience being in a mostly white uh, context or community that others would, you know, confuse her race or ethnicity. So that was something, again, that followed me followed me wherever I went. And you spent mm -hmm. some time in Kamchatka? I did. You know, the, the far, far east of, of Russia, I was teaching English as a second language there after I graduated. From, How far mm -hmm. from Moscow is Kamchatka? It's all the way across Siberia? the country. Yeah, it's, it's east of Siberia. So when I flew there from Pittsburgh, I believe I flew, no, I flew through New York, but on the way back, I flew around the country f from the west. So I went all around the globe in that trip. What was Kamchatka mm -hmm. like? I mean, that's rural Russia. <laughs> it is. It's rural Russia. It was, um, it was very rough, <laughs> if I can say. Uh, I was, you know, a, c a complete novelty there. I had been in, in Moscow, but it was a very small, very secluded area. Uh, but they did have, uh, they were a sister city of, I think, Pittsburgh or s somewhere in the U.S., and so they did have an active uh, program with the Rotary. So uh, someone else had taught English in Kamchatka the summer before and then reached out to Carnegie Mellon students and said, hey, is, if anyone is interested in this, you can, you can participate in this program over the summer. And I thought... Why not go to Kamchatka? So in the uh, summer, Siberia in the summer, in the summer. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, and and it was warm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't snowy. So I, I lucked out on that. What was your housing like there? Mm -hmm. I lived. I rented an apartment from someone. It was a small, uh, you know, one room apartment uh, in a in a building with the paint peeling off. And you know, uh, when I first got there, I looked down into the courtyard, and people were holding a little makeshift funeral for, I guess, someone who had passed away. But uh, in, it was a viewing, and the coffin was there, and it was open, and 
you know, four or five people were standing around it, and eventually a truck came and they, you know, loaded the casket in, and that was that. But I'd never seen anything like that. Uh, so it just, it, as you said, it was very rural, a completely different culture, even from Moscow, which was a big city, you know, very cosmopolitan. Were people friendly? No, no? <laughs> not really. Uh, so the people I worked with, Russians are very, uh, in, in that context, they, they're a little suspicious. But once you talk to them, they'll tell you their life story. So it's a kind of getting past that barrier of you know, getting glances and stares to actually uh, talking to someone, having a conversation with them. And then they'll, they'll open up and invite you into their home and you know, feed you and, and things like that. So uh, on the surface, not very friendly at all. But once you get to know people, uh, I had a really good experience. How many years were you in graduate mm -hmm. school? I was in graduate school for six years. Why did it take yeah. so long? <laughs> Believe it or not, that was a, a short period of time to, to finish my PhD. And, um, and I was there from 2001 to 2007. And it's just an extraordinary amount of work. This is Princeton? This is yeah. at Princeton, yeah. So some people I knew took seven years. Some took nine or ten. Uh, and often it's because people have families. They have other things in their lives that they're doing. So to devote... 100% of your time to studying uh, is not possible for everyone. After five years, your funding runs out. So if you're not done, which almost nobody was done in five years, you had to figure out how to support yourself for the rest of the time. What was your dissertation mm -hmm. in? It was in Russian poetry. That's what I studied as an undergrad. I translated and I continued to translate and study Russian poetry. W was there a different racial mm -hmm. makeup at Princeton than at Carnegie mm -hmm. Mellon or in your high schools? It was also very international. So as someone who studied language and culture, it was very mixed, but still very few African-Americans. So I didn't, because I studied uh, more international things, most of my friends came from my department or other programs, you know, French or comparative literature, where others studied similar things. And there were no other African-Americans in that group. When did you start thinking that you really mm -hmm. needed to know the answer to this question. In graduate school, for the first time, I had a black teacher. And this was the poet Yusuf Kominyaka. And I took an undergraduate poetry class with him. And there was a moment where, the, where students were discussing a poem I had written. And a boy with cornrows appeared in the poem. And one of the students said, I really, I, I don't like that detail. I don't know why. And uh, the Professor and I shared a look, and it was a look of realizing that we both understood the, the situation in the poem, and this other student didn't. And it was the first time I had shared a, a moment of recognition with someone else who was African-American. And I thought, you know, before I go any further, I was also getting older. I was, you know, going to be working and living on my own soon. And I thought, I need to sort this out for, for one, once and for all. Mm -hmm. you, you write in the book there was a moment when you wrote an email to your mother mm -hmm. and said, who is my father? Mm -hmm. how, how long did you wait before you hit the send button? That was, it was uh, shortly after that meeting, I went home and I thought, okay, I have to ask my mother. I have to find this out. And I opened the email and just stared at the screen for a while. I, I just didn't know how to, how to write that question, the simple question. Uh, it was... Uh, it, it took a lot, so it 
was a long time really before I hit that send button. And then afterwards, just kind of waited on pins and needles to see what her response was. And she didn't send a response. So after waiting a week, I called her and we finally had that conversation. What'd she say? She said that when she was in school, she was raped at a party. And she doesn't remember. She was passed out. And that's the person who was my biological father. And of course, it was very difficult to hear that. On the one hand, just knowing that I did have a biological father who was African-American made my identity and my experiences for all those years finally make sense. So in that way, it was a relief because of what I learned about myself. But of course, that opens up a whole can of worms. I had to process the fact that the father I had grown up from birth with was not my biological father. And then there was this shady figure who had assaulted my mother. And that was the person I was related to. So as you can imagine, there were a lot of complex emotions. It was overwhelming. And it took me, it wasn't something I could resolve in a few days. It took months and even years to unpack and try to put that whole story together. Did your father know? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's something I still have questions about. He said he didn't. Looking back, though, it's very, it's very difficult to believe that because everyone outside my family knew. Uh, after, you know, after I started writing my book and some personal essays, people that I grew up with, both teachers and parents of friends and friends, you know, got in touch with me and said, we always knew or we always thought you were African-American or biracial or we assumed you were adopted. So to the outside world, it was very clear that I was racially different than the rest of my family. So for my father to really not have known, uh, there, there must have been a lot of denial around that. And I think for both of my parents, they maybe thought they were shielding me from a difficult reality and uh, wanted me to not feel different in my family. So I think for them, it was uh, maybe an impulse to protect me, but I don't think they could account for what was happening on the flip side of that, that not talking about it made my, uh, made my life very difficult. Why did it make so mm -hmm. much of a difference? Mm -hmm. if, I mean, if you grew up thinking your father was Irish and your mm -hmm. mother was Italian, and then at age 27, you learned mm -hmm. your mother was Italian, your father was Swedish. Mm -hmm. why, why that much different to find out that your biological mm -hmm. father was black? It's a good question, and it's particularly because race is not a neutral fact in our country. So if your father it turns out to be Swedish and you've always identified as white, you're still within that larger identity group that uh, society protects and that society approves of. There is a big difference between uh, Swedish and African American, uh, and that was something I learned uh, through my own experiences because people always treated me differently, not in a bad way necessarily, but I mean, as I was walking around identifying as Irish and Italian, um, people were constantly questioning that. So if it had been as simple or let's say as uh, small of a change as Irish to Swedish, there's a good chance no one from the outside would have uh, challenged the concept of my own identity I had. But there's something about race and either being uh, a, some non-white ethnicity that in our society is very 
pointed and will always be pointed out to you, especially because I didn't live in a very mixed or diverse area. It was integrated in the sense that it wasn't, um, it wasn't, I think, it wasn't segregated by law, but in practice there were very few people who would, who, who looked like me. And so the difference between, you know, checking one box and then checking another was much more than that. It was more than something that was just symbolic or, like you said, kind of changed what I was on paper. So went through, what went through your head after you had that conversation with your mom and she told you about your biological father? So, so many things. As I said, it was, uh, it was first a relief, but then I just had so many complicated emotions. I felt very sad and I felt angry and almost nothing went through my head. It was all just emotions that I felt. It was almost too overwhelming to, to process intellectually. You, you say here, I, I, I was not taught what it meant to be biracial African-American in a white family, or rather mm -hmm. I never got to decide with my family what that would mean mm -hmm. for me and for us. How do you explain mm -hmm. to a, a, a white viewer mm -hmm. why that even matters? That's, and that's something that I've, I struggle to explain to my family. And as I said, because everything about our country's history and our present has been predicated on race. Uh, the legacy of slavery still exists. We can just turn on the news and see uh, instances of police brutality. We know there's discrimination that still exists. Actually, a researcher from Pitt just wrote uh, an article saying, yes, Pittsburgh, it's racism about discrimination that happens in schools, in employment, in the healthcare system. And so uh, for a white person who goes through the world uh, feeling themselves to be non-racist or colorblind uh, and, and very courteous to, to all people in their lives or who, who treats everyone the same, it's very hard uh, to think then, well, I'm part of this racist structure of our society. I'm, I'm not racist, so why uh, do people of color feel that, that white people are racist? It, it's something that feels very foreign to to white people, and certainly it did to my parents, they didn't understand why this was important to me. Just like you said, that why, why does it even matter? It's just, it just, it doesn't change anything about who you are. But uh, in fact, I realized that it changed very much. Did you start acting differently? I mean, did you start <laughs> reading different things or associating with different mm -hmm. people, watching different TV shows? It was, it was one of the questions I had because I felt like I was wading into foreign waters, that I was completely out of my element. And I write about thinking, well, now that I'm officially black, do, do I act differently or do I talk differently? And I realized, of course, that, or is there some secret way to be black that I didn't know about? And, you know, of, of course that's very silly. And I realized, no, that's, that's not the case. But I did start to uh, explore different um, cultural, cultural things. One of the things was uh, my hair and hair care. Uh, for uh, curly and African-American hair. I had always just pulled it back really tight uh, and never, you know, never let my natural texture show because I was taught that it's, that's not well-groomed. You know, you have to straighten your hair or pull it back. And um, one of my uh, friend's mothers was at a talk I gave yesterday. She said, I didn't see your hair in its natural state until you were in graduate school. So even people close to me, you know, never... I never showed them that side of myself because I had been taught, well, I had to look as, as close to uh, a, a white standard of what it meant to be well-groomed uh, as possible. And so one of the things that 
I felt I could connect to when I started on my identity journey through um, blackness and mixed race was embrace my natural hair and take care of it and you know let let that texture be shown to the world that that's okay it wasn't something I had to hide you had a coming out black party <laughs> I did it was something my friends did to mark the occasion we really we really didn't know what to do uh, it's very rare that someone changes racial identities as an adult in the middle of their life usually that's something just like any other part of your identity that you know you assume growing up you assume uh, in your family uh, that's something that isn't going to change throughout your life and I had this very strange experience of having to officially change how I identified racially so neither me nor my friends really knew what to do but to kind of show their support for me, um, they decided to throw me a surprise <laughs> coming out as black party. And it also showed that the way my friends and I had always dealt with this uh, ambiguity was through humor. Uh, because it was something that was a difficult subject and very, um, you know, required a lot of serious discussion, uh, that was something that was very uncomfortable. None of us knew how to. Uh, how to approach it. I didn't. It was happening to me and I didn't even really know how to to go about this transition or how to really articulate to my friends everything I was feeling or what it meant for me. And so the the way they tried to show their support for me was, was in throwing me this little party and they gave me a, a black hair magazine and some dark and lovely uh, hair care products and I think even some Kool-Aid packets, which I said was very uh, grape Kool-Aid. It's uh, you know kind of kind of a racist stereotype. It was meant to be funny, but even in that moment, I realized, well, I, I have to move beyond this kind of humor and seeing black culture as as just stereotypes. I have to learn what it really means and and not be afraid to to have those difficult conversations. Did you talk to your dad mm -hmm. about it? I did, and uh, it was very emotional for me. He said, no, no matter what, I'll always be your dad. And I felt that I always had his support. And it was difficult for him, too, because growing up, he had also assumed I was his daughter. And when this all came out, we took a paternity test with me and my dad, a DNA test, just to be sure. And it did come back, in fact, that we were not biologically related. And you started looking for your biological father? I did. I first, you know, tried to pull the information out of my mother, uh, and she was. She said, "I don't know who he is. I, I don't know what happened that night." And uh, again, there. But sometimes she told that story a little bit differently. So there were moments when I wasn't sure what to believe, and I contacted some other family members and some family friends that knew her and my dad, and they would give me hints or say, "Well, yeah, there was someone." but they never quite got around to giving me a name. And when I tried to do uh, you know, Google searches on my own or my own internet resource, my own internet research, it all just came up empty each time. So after a number of years that I devoted a lot of energy to trying to find my biological father because I thought, well, if I do, then I will be validated. I will know that here is, you know, I have my white parent and I have my black biological parent and that that shows that I am biracial that that will kind of complete 
my family picture or personal picture. Again, even though the circumstances were not that this person was part of my family in any close sense. But over the years, I realized that I didn't want that to be the focus of my life. I had my own life to live, my own relationships, my own work, and my own friends, and that just became less important as time went on. Did you um, talk to, uh, while you were going through this or writing mm -hmm. this book, talk to uh, other adoptees about, uh, about mm -hmm. their search for their biological parents? I did, and even though I wasn't officially adopted, my, my story, you know, there's a lot in my story that is similar to uh, adoption stories. And a lot of people, uh, someone the other day came up to me and said, well, I had the opposite problem I was adopted, uh, I, I believe she was Scandinavian. She was adopted by parents who did look like her. And she said, people always assume things about, you know, that I am my parents' biological child. And I have to explain, well, well, no, I'm, I'm adopted. So uh, people from all sides of, of this issue have, have things that they deal with. And yes, they, they come to me and, and we talk about how our stories are connected. Tell me about Michael. Michael, um, so this is my ex-husband, and I met him soon after I, I learned this family revelation. And he was mixed race. He was Nigerian and English. And he was the first person I met and became close to who really could understand what I was going through, you know, having grown up biracial himself and uh, had a lot more experience. He was someone who could help me process things in a way that my family and my friends from graduate school, you know, mostly my white friends, couldn't. So that was one of the ways in which we became very close. You met in graduate school? I did. I was in graduate school, and he was a writer who was visiting to uh, give a talk. So that was the way we met, and we kept in touch for a while. And when I got a postdoc on the West Coast, at UCLA. He also lived in Los Angeles, so we started dating. I have to ask about something you mm -hmm. wrote about it. At one point, I guess you were married at this time in the mm -hmm. fall of 2012, mm -hmm. and uh, you were both teaching at UC Riverside, yeah. University of California, Riverside. And <clears throat> in the fall of 2012, Northwestern University's English department recruited Michael for an endowed professorship. Mm -hmm. Part of UC Riverside's counteroffer to keep Michael from mm -hmm. leaving was a tenure-track position for you. Yes. But the offer would be void if Michael decided to accept. The offer to you would be void if Michael went to Northwestern. Do, yes. do colleges, universities do that sort of negotiating? Like they want, they mm -hmm. want him so they'll give you a professorship mm -hmm. so they can keep him? That's, that's routine in college. It is. Uh, the idea of a, of a spousal hire is something that is pretty common. So um, uh, as academics and professors, you have to go where the jobs are. And sometimes they're all the way across the country. And because fields are so specialized and positions are specialized, it's rare that there would be two positions at the same place that match the career uh, trajectories of, of two people in a relationship. So often when one is hired, they will, uh, in whatever department is appropriate, also find a position or make a position for the spouse. And that was the situation I was in as the spouse who would be um, getting uh, a job at Northwestern along with my husband, but it was uh, it was not a tenure track job, so it would have been a lectureship or a visiting position, which was where I was at in Riverside, and I wanted to progress in my career. I had done all the work for that, and it was a bit of a sting that I wasn't going to get 
the tenure track job or that they would take that offer away from me because um, because my husband was recruited somewhere else. You mm -hmm. were uh, on the East Coast until you got this position mm -hmm. in uh, California? I was. What was the adjustment like? The adjustment, I loved California. I loved Los Angeles. I know a lot of people from the East Coast, uh, they're very different cultures, but for me, one of the reasons was it was much more integrated. It was much more mixed. There were uh, brown people from all different backgrounds, and I didn't stand out as much. And I felt like, okay, this is, this is a place I can blend in for the first time. I didn't feel like I was just, you know, always the one who was different. So that was one of the reasons that L.A. felt uh, so comfortable for me. You have a picture of uh, yourself with your former in-laws mm -hmm. in... Uh that was in London? In London. You have their faces blurred out. Why did you do that? I do, because by that time, uh, we were not married anymore. We had been divorced, and I didn't, you know, I just wanted to protect their privacy. Did you visit mm -hmm. Africa? Uh, I did. We went to see the World Cup in Johannesburg in South Africa with my ex-husband because he had family living there at the time. So it was just a wonderful experience. And it was interesting, though, because of South Africa's history of apartheid, um, I was not considered black in the way uh, natives of the region, the black people of Johannesburg and South Africa were. Uh, as a foreigner and as someone who was mixed race, I, I was kind of just not considered anything. I was considered American. And uh, his, his family, who were Nigerian and also mixed race, they weren't considered black in the same way that the locals were. So it was a really interesting experience that showed me just how just how different race is experienced in different places. Did, mm -hmm. did you ever eventually find mm -hmm. out that the real story about mm -hmm. your uh, your birth? The the real story uh, is a very interesting phrase because uh, no I never did uh, in terms of facts and I think when sexual assault is involved there's there's uh, there are often no no facts to be, you know, how do you fact check something like that? I've gotten different versions of uh, what was happening in college in my parents' life at that time from, from friends or from people who were there with them, but I have never gotten, as I write about, one single story that explains from beginning to end, you know, how I came to be. You, you write in there, uh, mm -hmm. this book, that, that you were raped while you were drunk? In college? I was. I experienced a, a situation very similar to what my mom described. Did it give you a different view mm -hmm. of what your mom told you? Well, it it showed me, you know, in a, in a very personal way uh, how something like that can happen and how you can not know because, you know, I obviously didn't get pregnant after that encounter, so there was no way I could know who who had done that to me. So that's that's something I understood was a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. How are you with this whole thing mm -hmm. now? I mean, have you, have you settled it? Are you still looking mm -hmm. for your biological father? Do you mm -hmm. understand who you are? I understand who I am, and one of the uh, realizations I come to in the book is that if my story has fragments in it and parts that aren't uh, finished or tied up neatly, that's okay. That's something that uh, a lot of people have to deal with, and it doesn't mean I'm any less whole as a person. 
there is still family out there that I would love to connect with. I would love to connect with my African-American side and learn my ancestry uh, in this country from that perspective. I have suspended my search for my biological father for now. As I said, uh, it's something I don't want to devote a lot of time to. And I also came to feel that I was valid and authentic without having that person standing next to me, that I represent my own race and identity in a way that I don't need someone else to uh, to answer for. Are you putting your education to good use these days? Uh, I am. Right now, I'm just writing. Uh, before that, I was teaching, and I hope to find another teaching position soon. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking mm -hmm. with Sarah Valentine. She is the author of this book, When I Was White. Mm -hmm. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian, for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.